Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And there's a broken record, I say, every week. It's another uh, fantastic week, another fantastic guest. And, uh, you know, I've been so lucky to um, not only interview people, but be interviewed on different podcasts, not only uh, here in the UK, in the US and in Australia. And I always like to reciprocate with the people that I appear on their shows because they have just as amazing careers. Well, I think I had a pretty ordinary career. Most of the people I interview have had amazing careers. But anyway, I'm procrastinating. Patrick O'Donnell, welcome to the podcast, sir. How are you this evening? I'm very good, Ali. I got to say, you're being a little bit humble. I think uh, you have an excellent podcast. I do listen to it. And it was an honor to have you on my show the cops and writers podcast and yeah you were my one and only australian police officer that i've ever interviewed so that was fascinating you know you you have a great story and i am honored to be on your show sir well do you know the biggest positive out of all of this whenever i sit down with fantastic people like you that have podcasts is our audio setups are amazing you know like, there's never <laughs> any fear of Cats attacking guests, children screaming, microphones in, <laughs> microphones out. We are on the money. So thank you ever so much for turning up now. But to the formalities, like every uh, 
um, episode, I like to wind back the career clock of my guests. And the first question has to be, as it always is, why policing for you? I think it started as a youth. When I was a kid, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. And for those who aren't familiar, you know, Chicago is one of the biggest cities in the United States. Lots of crime, lots of action, lots of stuff going on. And I remember being a kid and watching the Chicago Police Department, you know, whizzing by the house and their squad cars with the lights and sirens. And, you know, it's all very exciting when you're, you know, when you're when you're a kid and also when you're for some adults, too, I guess. And I think what really topped it off was the police did a raid or they they served a search warrant on our neighbors and the homes are very, very close together. And I'm looking out the kitchen window and, you know, they have the shield, you know, their tactical team is there. They've got the shield, they have the helmets on, the big Kevlar vests and breaching tools. And there was, you know, two officers in our backyard. One had an M16, you know, machine gun and the other one had a, a shotgun. And, you know, they're, they're, they're there to do business. You know, this is serious stuff. And I'm, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And my eyes are popping out of the sockets going, holy cow, you know, what's going on here? You know, so they breach the door, they're pulling people out. And I'm like, okay, that does it. I want to do this for a living. This looks like a lot of fun, you know. (laughs) You know, that and, of course, you know, popular TV shows back in the day, you know, like Adam 12 and, you know, SWAT and, you know, Starsky and Hutch and all these cool, you know, police shows. When you, you watch those as a kid and you're like, yeah, that looks like something I want to do. So was so we talk about the sort of mid nineties. Nineteen ninety five is your sort of entry date into the police academy. Talk us about that process of going through the recruiting phase of that. Was that an easy process in terms of interviews and testing, and then finally getting that letter of um, of approval and assignment date to start? It was highly competitive back then. When I took the written test, I believe there was about three thousand people that took the written test for about 200 jobs. So the odds were pretty much stacked against you, you know, right on the get-go. Yeah, I went to university. I got my degree in sociology, and I had a minor in criminal justice. And I actually started college to be a music major. I was going to be a band teacher. That's what I started with. And then, you know, there was the police thing was always in the back of my head. And then... I did an internship with the uh, sheriff's department in the city of Milwaukee, and that really cemented my you know attention and were like, wow, this this is so cool. I got to do this for a living. But the way it worked was they have a big cattle call. You know, like I said, about three thousand people showed up for the written exam, and if you passed it, and you don't know how well you did until the very 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 end. So if you passed then they will do a physical agility exam. And back then, the physical agility was you had to hang from a chin-up position, you know, from a chin-up bar for 45 seconds. Your chin couldn't go below the bar for 45 seconds. So you're up in the air. You know, that's probably the longest 45 seconds I ever did. I'm like, holy cow, this is tough. Because three guys ahead of me were like big muscular dudes, and each one of them fell off the... um, chin up bar and I'm like oh god okay well and if you fail anything you're done you know you just get kicked out 
and you have to go through all the reapplications. You have to take the written test over, yada, yada. So I did the chin-up thing, and then there was like a 175-pound dummy. You had to drag you know, up and down the gymnasium floor. And if you twisted your body to get momentum, or if you fell, you failed. Then there was a six-foot wall. You had to go over an X amount of time. I forget what that was. And then you had to go outside and run a half mile in under four minutes. It all sounds fairly intensive. It was. You know, and I trained hard for it. But yeah, it nerves, you know, you don't want to mess up. You know, you, you don't want to do, you know, if you trip or you sprain your ankle or you do something like that, you're done. There's, there's no second chance. So you have that added pressure of, you know, the physicality part, but, you know, mentally it was more challenging, I think, because you just didn't want to screw up. So if you made it through that, the next step would be the backgrounds. And a detective would actually investigate you. And this is back when detectives do it. Now they have civilians that are mostly retired members of the police department doing this. But back then they were active detectives and they went back. They talked to your high school teachers, all of your friends. You know, of course, they're going to do a background check on you. Make sure you're not a wanted bad guy. You know, you don't have a criminal record. Your driving record has to be good. All that kind of stuff. And they talk to all of your friends that you list you know, I was married at the time, so they talked to your spouse, they talked to your teachers, they go, they went to the university that I went to and talked to my professors, they talked to your parents, they talked to your neighbors, I mean, they do a full, 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 there's no messing around there, you know, they do a very extensive background check on you, and if you pass all of that, then you go for a physical, and it's kind of like an army physical, you know, there's like little stations, you're there with like, I think there's about 50 people there when I took it, you know, just make sure you can see and hear and, you know, there's nothing too badly wrong with you. And then you get a number and you have to wait for your number to get called. And I waited for four years to get my number called. Wow. Four years. Yep. I waited four years. I was 26 when I went through all the testing and I didn't get hired till I was 30. So you get hired at the age of 30. Does that mean you go into the police academy to start your training? Correct. Yeah. You're being paid. You're they swear you in on your first day of the police academy. They don't want you running out and like arresting people or anything like that because you're not, you know, trained up yet. But you're technically a police officer. You raise your right hand and take the oath of office. You don't get your badge yet. <laughs> you get your badge when you graduate six months later. But yeah, yeah. So you get sworn in, and then all the training begins. So I talk about this training and, and most of my guests will be familiar with sort of UK training because a large proportion of my guests are from UK law enforcement. But what I'd like to ask you is, is obviously one of the major differences, I believe, between both the between the UK um, and the US, not so much Australia, where I come from, is certainly you graduate with the capability of being able being authorized to use lethal force, carry a firearm drive a motor car in terms of going to you know, going to jobs and doing all that sort of interesting stuff I always worry about the sort of sort of the expectations placed on younger officers with such sort of abilities not only to arrest and take away the rights of another human being but also in the worst case scenario to end the life of another human being who poses a significant risk to you or other members of the public were you ready do you think at that point in your life to handle that level of responsibility? I think I was, you know, I was 30 years old, so I was one of the older people in the academy, in my academy class. 
a lot of them were 21, 22, 23-year-olds, something like that. There was only one other person that was older than me, and he was 43, I think. And he was a city employee. He was like a, a parking enforcement person for years. So he just transitioned over to the, the PD. And every day he'd just look at me and he's like, Pat, I'm not going to make it. Every time we'd run, you know, he he looked like he was going to die. He's like, Pat, I'm going to have a heart attack. I cannot do this. I'm like, yes, you can. Yes, you can, Don. And he did. You know, God bless him. He He made it. But I was a little more mature. And they do give you a lot of really good training, a lot of scenario-based training. So there's nothing like the real thing. You know, you can train as much as you like, but once you're placed in that position, I was on the street for less than a week and I was put in a lethal force situation where we got called to a stabbing and it was like, I'm working midnight to eight, seven o'clock in the morning, we get called to a stabbing and it's like, they give a description of the suspect and I still remember the description. It was black male, early twenties, wearing a white t-shirt, black jeans, armed with a butcher knife. I was like, okay. How old are you? I'm with my FTO. We're the first ones on the scene. And what do you think's running right at us? The, uh, matching that description with the knife in his hand, he's just covered in blood. And I jump out of the, we're in a wagon. I jump out and I draw down, you know, I'm giving him commands. And I think he could see I was probably more scared than him. You know, I was just like, holy shit, I'm going to have to shoot somebody. You know, it's like I had that split second of like, I don't want to do this, but I also don't want to get stabbed. So, you know, we just kind of like locked eyes and the guy actually fell on the ground, you know, dropped the knife. We handcuffed him and my FTO, my training officer, looked at me and says, just so you know, usually they're running the other direction when we pull up. They're not running towards... He was in shock that he just... This, he killed his best friend over a poker game. They were all drunk and stupid and whatever else, and he stat, wound up being a brawl because he accused his friend of cheating. And they were in the kitchen, and he took a knife out of the sink and stabbed him in the armpit. And getting stabbed in the armpit is not a good place to get stabbed. You know, one thing I talk about a lot on the podcast with various guests is kind of, you know, the first 6, 12 months of realization that policing... And the um, vocation of law enforcement can be one that presents you with numerous different challenges and exposes you to sort of the real significant ends of the spectrum of life in terms of the people, their vulnerabilities, the crisis they're going through, the incidents you're seeing, the incidents of domestic violence and homicides. You know, there you are, literally straight out of the academy, dealing with a homicide with a chap armed with a knife covered in blood. Is that the point you realize that this job is going to present you some really serious challenges from time to time? Yes. And I knew that it would be interesting I guess I'll use that word, or challenging or problematic. Sometimes they all kind of meld together as far as I was placed in one of the worst neighborhoods, and by worst, probably one of the most violent neighborhoods in the city, i.e. the country. You know, the rate of shootings, homicides, you know, violent crime. So it was also one of the most impoverished areas of the city. So that had, you know, specific, you know, issues as well. And I knew all that going into it. You know, I didn't know where I was going to go until the day I graduated from the academy and I heard, oh, District 5, late shift. All right, cool. 
you know, it was kind of a sink or swim situation where you know you're gonna if you make it out of there, you're gonna be a good cop. In an effort to increase security at precincts across the city, the Milwaukee Police Department announces the installation of bulletproof glass in all district lobbies by midsummer. Our Elaine Rojas Castillo shares what led to this decision. It's a barrier, but yet we can still interact with our citizens. Four months after a gunman entered Milwaukee Police District 5 and opened fire, MPD, along with the Milwaukee Police Association, unveiled plans to install bulletproof glass in each of its precinct lobbies by early July. Located next to the subject was a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson semi-automatic pistol. Subsequent investigation revealed that the three spent casings recovered in the District 5 station matched the firearm recovered from the suspect. The subject's gunfire caused damage to the District 5 lobby and front office area. This investigation is still ongoing and due to an abundance of caution is being led by the Milwaukee Area Investigative Team with the West Dallas Police Department as the lead agency. The man accused of opening fire inside MPD District 5 will be in court again next month for a status hearing. Darion Parker Bell faces multiple charges including attempted homicide. Prosecutors say he fired shots in the station shortly after the in-custody death of his friend Keyshawn Thomas. Do you do you have are there opportunities? It's an interesting way to phrase this question in terms of opportunities, but there are are there stages through those first six months where you're working night shift district five, one of the most hostile environments that you could police in the area. Is, is, are there times opportunities where you can be fearful of it, of situations you're going into? And does that element of fear make you better at what you're doing? Well, I think it makes you more vigilant. You know, I interviewed a... And I worked there for seven years, uh, midnight to eight, at District 5. And I didn't want to leave. I got There was a big citywide transfer. I got stationed to it. I got, I got uh, transferred to a different station. But... There was one time I interviewed a uh, ex-KGB agent, actually, on my podcast, and he was talking about paranoia is a spy's worst enemy, caution is his best friend. And I think that holds true for law enforcement, too. If you're paranoid, you're going to freeze, and you're not going to make good decisions, most likely. But if you're cautious, you are going to make good decisions, and, you know, it's head, head on a swivel, you know, being cautious, being aware of your surroundings, basic, you know, basic situations and basic tactics to, you know, preserve your life and everybody else's. You know, it, it was not unusual to be driving around at, you know, one, two, three o'clock in the morning around live gunfire. We had to put up, they're called shot spotters that detect when, the, when we have these um, guns go off. And it will tell you like where and how many shots and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was a very dangerous area. But the camaraderie that builds within the your unit with the officers is amazing because you literally have your partner's life in you know in their hands or in your hands, you know, or the people that you work with, and you know what it's like. Not everybody's going to get along. Not everybody is the same. But when it's time to go do the job. You have to throw all all that stuff out the window, and you have to go do the job. One of the things that impresses me, even today, because it doesn't seem to have changed any way, shape, or form. Although I believe society globally has become more violent, I think the um, the value of life 
has has lessened in terms in the eyes of some of the more nefarious people in society globally. But one of the things that I've always been really taken aback by is the level of respect given to law enforcement officers in America in the sense of the service they're giving to their communities, you know, the in, in, in terms of the protecting and serving. And 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 it really hits you certainly when an officer loses their life in the line of duty, the sort of celebration of that officer's life the way that the department comes together this whole incredible scenes of long motorcades was there times throughout your career where you lost colleagues in the line of duty people that you knew people that you worked with was that I suppose it was was hopefully not a regular occurrence but how did you manage those sort of emotions well when I had maybe a year on the job an officer was shot and killed during a foot chase you know, he was chasing somebody that was armed, and the bad guy went around a corner behind a house, and the police officer more or less just ran into an ambush, and he killed him. You know, the bad guy killed him. He shot and killed him. But I'll back up a little bit. A year before, eh, six months before I got hired, another police officer got hired that got shot and killed that my boss, I was selling cars at the time, was best friends with. And they came from a small little town in northern Wisconsin. His wife at the time was pregnant with twins. And he worked for a suburban police department, but he wanted to work on a big city department. He was kind of sick of the slower pace. He wanted he wanted the action. He wanted, you know, you know, we, we term that as fun. You know, it's like car chases and foot chases and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And he was on field training. He only had, I think, a month or two on the street. They were driving in a patrol wagon, and there was a bad guy waiting for him with a sniper rifle and shot him. And the bullet actually split in two and hit him in the neck and traveled, like, down his, his neck, and he was killed almost instantly. So that's that was really hard for me because here I am getting hired and this background detective was talking to my boss that was best friends with this person and he, you know he pulled me into his office and said Pat please don't become a cop. I just lost my best friend. Why are you doing this? And I'm like, well, a somebody has to do it. You know, it's it's a job that has to be done. So through the years, I was very fortunate where there were officers that were shot but not killed or you know severely injured but not killed and then unfortunately my last four years on the job we had three officers lose their life and one of them was one of my cops that I supervised for years and I became friends with him and he transferred and I transferred and you know we became disassociated the way it happens in a big police department and I heard, you know, he was, it was so horrible. They were going after somebody that had felony warrants. They were going up a stairwell, and he was, the bad guy was under a bunch of clothes, just laying in wait. And he shot my friend in the top of the head, and the bullet traveled through his brain and exited under his chin. So he was killed instantly. Those sort of stories really demonstrate sort of the, the bravery, you know, and the honour and the valour of these individuals that, you know, trying to take these sort of these bad individuals off the streets that, you know, are, are really 
just the the, the bad of the bad. But you know, I, I was I've always been intrigued as well by sort of you know we see it a lot here outside of the US in terms of one's right to bear arms. It, it, it's in the Constitution, and I've always been intrigued as what. A police officer's view of that is in terms of background checks on people that want to obtain firearms, in terms of whether there's any sort of mental health warnings, whether or not they're known to police, whether they've got sort of backgrounds that shouldn't be sort of associated with the possession of firearms. Is that is that a conversation that you have within the department? So why can't we do more to prevent these people from having these guns? Because it seems to me that it's quite easily accessible. Yeah, you know... <sighs> It's a sticking point, and, you know, and unfortunately, politics rears its ugly head. But as far as the cops go, you know, it's not... You can purchase a firearm in the United States, but you have to do go through, you know, background checks to purchase a firearm from a gun store, you know, like a sporting goods shop or a gun store or something like that. If I wanted to sell you my gun, you know, like my best friend, you know, if I want to sell him a gun, there isn't a background check. So that's kind of a loophole. The sticky part of all of this is if a criminal wants to get a gun, they're going to get one. More laws aren't going to change anything because there are a ton of gun laws out there right now that are barely enforced or not enforced or very, very light sentences or it'll get plead down to, you know, it might start out as a felony, it'll be a misdemeanor, and they'll get probation. They won't spend any time in prison. I've gone, I've investigated hundreds and hundreds of shootings and homicides. And unless the person was killed, the, the person who shot that other person, they might get three years in prison, two years in prison, maybe sometimes less than that. You know, so unless they take it seriously, which it's not being taken seriously, more gun laws aren't going to do anything. Background checks aren't going to do anything because the people who commit these crimes aren't law-abiding citizens. They're criminals, and they can get their hands on guns. There's, there isn't much to that, let's just say that. You know, and short of going door-to-door -door and taking everybody's guns away from them, which is not going to happen, and I don't endorse, it's just going to keep on happening. And like what you said at the beginning, or towards the beginning of the show, is you think that there's a almost a white noise when it comes to violence and the taking of life, and it just doesn't seem as sacred as it should be especially with young people. It's almost like a desensitization. Desen they're desensitized to the sanctity of human life. Now, you know, I'm not a sociologist. I have a degree in sociology, but I'm not a sociologist you know, or a psychologist, and I can only venture to guess what's going on with that. But I have seen you know, the result of it. It's um, certainly an issue that we're grappling with over here, not necessarily with firearms, but with knife crime. You know, uh, London in particular has, I think, what we'd only describe as an epidemic of uh, young men making the incredibly poor decision to go out into the streets armed with knives, fighting over postcodes. You know, you've got gang violence, you've got county lines where we're running drugs all over the place. It really is quite terrifying in terms of the age of these youngsters and you know their lives being cut so short um at the, at the hands of 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 their peers within the same age cohort and group it's um it's dreadfully upsetting but what i so what i want to focus on now 
is sort of we've got a few stories here that we're going to sort of relive throughout your career. And obviously noting that you have taken part in the investigation of hundreds of homicide investigations, which is incredible feat in itself. And I think one of these, you note that some of them, you've only been a few blocks away when these things have gone down. So you've been very, very quick to get on the scene and sort of take control and start investigating. But I want to recall first story that you've kindly sent me which we've we wish which we're going to title a tense standoff which was around about 1997 so fairly early on in your career give us a bit of a lowdown about that story a tense standoff so where i worked in this you know very busy very violent district most of the time we would work two man you know back then it was two man you know, now it's two person you know squads where you would have a partner sitting next to you more for safety reasons than anything else well, there's so many shortages, you know, but people would call in sick. You know, people are having babies. People are out on maternity leave. People are, you know, there's there's all, it's a very fluid uh, situation when you're dealing with personnel issues. So I wound up working by myself that night, and there was one other car in the district that was working by itself. And the uh, officer that was working the other car was the class clown. This guy could have been a stand-up comic. He was so funny. Oh, my gosh. He would have everyone just rolling, laughing. And he could, you know, there's all kinds of talk about de-escalation. You know, that's one of the big catchphrases in law enforcement now. And that's been going on for hundreds of years in law enforcement. You know, a good cop would much rather talk their way out of something than fight their way out of something. You know, it's if I can talk somebody out of something and have them happy putting on handcuffs, then I did my job right. And I, I work with some people that are just masters of it. And this guy was one of them. His name was Robert Wojulius. We called him Wojo. Loved Wojo. And, but Wojo hated overtime. We get a call at 7 o'clock in the morning. Now, remember, we're working midnight to 8. 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, squad 50. I was 50. He was 51. We got a dispatchers like we have numerous calls for a subject shooting a rifle out his apartment window he's the second floor southwest you know blah 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 it was like a four family apartment building and we're like and she the dispatcher kept on updating it which tells us that okay this is real a lot of times you know, you get called to a subject with a gun or shots fired and it's nothing you know especially if only one person calls it in. But when everybody on the block is calling this, you know, calling for the police and calling 911 or 999 in your case, yeah, it's like, okay, this is real. So I got Wojo on a side channel. I'm like, dude, you know, we're going to walk up on this. We're going to be tactical, you know, just, and I know you hate overtime, but, you know, we, we have to slow this down and, you know, we have to be very safe. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah right, whatever. And I'm like, okay, I know this asshole is not taking me serious. And I'm like, all right. So I scream over there. Sarge is on the other side of the district. And we initially will just send two officers to something like that and to surveil and see, okay, what exactly do we have? If we need more resources, then we'll call for them. So I park like a block away. I grab the shotgun. And I'm being all tactical, and I, I take my peek around the corner, and there's Wojo Squad in front of this house. And I'm like, oh, my God, why would you park in front, Wojo? That's like, I won't do that for a barking dog complaint, let alone a subject with a rifle, you know. So I can I get in through the front door, and I can hear him talking, 
And I'm like, oh, well, maybe it's not so bad. Because he's just just trying to carry on a conversation with whoever. And so I'm checking around corners. I'm tactically going up the stairs with a shotgun. And Wojo's got his gun out, and it's pointed into a bedroom. You know, the apartment door is open. Then there's a bedroom. I mean, I can close my eyes and see it clear as day. And he's got his gun out, but he's talking to this guy. And he kind of gives me a nod like, yeah, this ain't good. So I take a peek. I got the shotgun. Here's this guy laying in his, he's a grown man. He's probably about 24, 25 years old, just wearing his boxer shorts. It was a hot summer day, and he's just sweating profusely. He's obviously in some kind of situation. And he's got a rifle, and he's got the the muzzle of the rifle pointed at his, like, I think his son was like five or six years old laying on the bed. And this poor little kid was just whimpering. And we both look at each other and I'm like, holy shit. So I get on the air with the dispatch and I'm like, I tell them what we have. So now the cavalry is coming and you know, you're going to have negotiators. You're going to have the SWAT team. You're going to have all kinds of stuff. And if that happens, it's going to be hours and hours, you know, I didn't have a clear shot, otherwise I would have taken it. The I had a shotgun. The shotgun is a force multiplier, but we use double O buck, which means there's eight the, almost the size of a thirty eight caliber bullet inside this wad. And it's not precise. It goes in that direction, but the further it goes, the further apart these bullets go. So I could not take the ch- Yeah. So I could not take the chance of discharging this weapon and harming this child. You know, so we're like, oh boy. He had he had the muzzle of the gun, you know, the end part to this child's head, but his finger was not on the trigger. And we're like, okay, if his finger goes to the trigger, I'm going to have to do something. There, there won't be any, there's no choice, you know, there's no getting around that. So we hear the sirens coming and, you know, et cetera. And so Wojo's like, dude, he said, everybody and their mother's coming to this. He, you know, he's like, I hate overtime. And, you know, he was sincere because he hated overtime. He says, this is going to be a three or four hour standoff. You're going to be talking to negotiators. The SWAT team's going to come down, you know, blah, 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 blah. Or you could stand up like a man, give me that fucking rifle, and let's, get, let's just get this over with, please. And the guy looked at him and he said, okay. He put down the rifle, turned around, we put him in handcuffs, just as everyone's like rushing up to us, like, yeah, we got this. That's an incredible story. And you think about the, the tenseness of it in terms of the fact that you've got this young child who's the victim of this shocking level of violence to, I assume, somebody that he knows is probably his father or his uncle, is it, in that, in, in that scenario? It was his dad. And I don't know where mom was. Mom came later. You know, the police had to stop her from running up the stairs, obviously. But he was intoxicated. He was heavily intoxicated. And he was just shooting out the window. Just dead. Don't worry about it. It's an incredible story. And then obviously what comes from that is obviously a, probably a lengthy debrief with you, your colleague, and, and your and your sergeant. You know, like it's... Um, how does that debrief fall? You- Not back then. It was like, all right, arrest him, take him downtown. You know, we have crime scene people to, you know, document the crime scene. All right, I'll I'll take the rifle, I'll inventory it, I'll do whatever. Next day, it's like business as usual. And who's the investigating officer for all those charges that he's committed in terms of discharging a firearm? Is there a detective who takes over the case? Yeah, 
there would be a detective that would come and the detective is the person who would do the questioning of the person once he's under arrest. He would do the interrogation and the detectives helped with the neighborhood canvas. The, you know, police officers do that and detectives do that. And it's like, you know, you trace back to who was calling 911, who was calling the dispatcher with this. Usually they have some good information. You know, you have to identify the person. You know, there's going to be physical evidence. You know, there's shell casings in, inside the apartment. There's shell casings outside the, you know. You have to make sure that nobody is shot. You know, if he's firing into other houses, you got to make sure that nobody's dead or, you know, injured. You know, that. thank God, you know, none of that happened. He didn't hit anything. He more or less shot off into the sky or or into a building or whatever. But thank goodness, nobody got hurt. So you've got all of that, but we did the physical arrest. We inventoried the rifle, and we sat on him. We took him downtown until a detective would talk to him. But it was our case. I'm always intrigued. You know, I talk about it on the podcast over here in terms of the, st- the stress, the anxiety of family, knowing that you're going out and about and doing this type of work. And c- certainly as dangerous as it sounds, it's, it's, it, it's always appears to me to be sort of on another level in terms of the sort of you know, the access to firearms is obviously a key denominator in terms of the sort of threat assessment that you do when you go to these jobs. It's not every day here that someone pokes a rifle out a window and starts just blapping off rounds left, right and centre. How do you support your family knowing that you're dealing with these different types of scenarios on any given night? You know, when I was new, you know, I did not have children, right? We didn't have children right away. We waited a couple of years. I was probably like 32 when we first started having children and my wife at the time now ex, you know, I remember I was laying in bed, you know, you get done with work at eight o'clock in the morning. Hopefully if nothing crazy happens, you're in bed by nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. And it was a weekend. And one of her friends called and says, Hey, I just saw Pat on TV. You know, is he okay? I was at the whatever, you know, it was like a, a bomb threat, a fire, uh, a big, you know, like a triple homicide or something or whatever. And, She's like, yeah, he's fine. Yeah, I'm hearing this when I'm laying in bed. Then the, the next day comes along, and again, it's like, we just saw Pat on TV again. Are you sure he's okay? And it's like, yeah, he's fine. You know, blah, blah. The third day comes around. Literally, I'm on, I was on TV three days in a row, and I wasn't doing anything great or fantastic or anything. I was probably guarding yellow tape or whatever. And But it was always at some big scene that I was at. And... <laughs> Yeah, and finally, my ex-wife is like, you know what? I got a tough job, too. And she's like, why are you so worried about him? And so I was laying in bed, and it's like, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm going to think, I'm going to remember that little comment. Because she would get jealous. Because if you went to a party, if you went to dinner, if you went to whatever, right away people are like, oh, what's the craziest thing that happened to you? Tell me a story, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Sometimes your significant other feels left out by that. So that's what happened to me. You know, my parents, I didn't tell them everything, but they still lived in Chicago. They still do. And they know what's going on, you know, in a big city and what it's like to be a cop in a big city. So my poor little Irish Catholic mother, you know, (laughs) probably saying 100 rosaries a day for me or something. (laughs) Let's move on to the sort of next uh, story that you've given me. Ninety-seven, ninety-eight is the uh, is the is the year that we're 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 approaching into here, and we've titled this one a heartwarming story, which is about your first partner job was a female cop 
who was also a mother of two. She loved kids. And uh, I think you're on your way to, to get some food and came across a, a, a mother with her children. And, and uh, you put here, you began an odyssey of breaking lots of rules to save the day. Tell us about that one. It sounds remarkable. Yeah. My, uh, my first partner on the job was Patty Schnell, another Irish gal. So we got along really well. I remember she wore a big green clatter ring, and I'm like, I know what that is. You know, was, both my parents were born in Ireland, so yeah, and I we were, we hit it off right away. And she loved, loved, loved children. Her her soft spot was kids. She had two of her own, and she just loved children. So it's a busy Friday night or whatever night it was, and the radio is just going bananas. You know, it's super busy, and. I looked at her and she looked at me and I'm like, I'm starving. I haven't eaten yet. I didn't eat like literally all day. I was doing kid stuff or I didn't sleep. And she's like, same here. We got to eat. And I'm like, okay. So we were on whatever assignment we were on and we didn't clear with the dispatcher, which is a no-no. We drive across the district out of our squad area to go just grab us a sandwich, you know, and here's this mom with three little kids waving as like a drunk octopus, you know, just the tentacles are going all over the place and say, hey, hey, hey. And I'm like, oh boy. So it's, I think it was 4th of July weekend. It was a big weekend. She was from out of town. It wasn't the worst neighborhood, but it wasn't the best neighborhood. It's like one o'clock in the morning. She's got her three little kids and she said, my car broke down. I've got nowhere to go. I, you know, back then I don't think she had a cell phone I did but she did not have one and Patty my partner is like oh yeah come on in I'm like um okay so she's got like this two year old on her lap in the front of the squad we got mom and the two other kids in the back of the squad and she's explaining the situation to us and I'm like Patty they keep the dispatcher keeps on you know banging we say banging us which means you know calling us you know how much more time how much more time i've got one waiting for you and it's like okay give me you know five more minutes give me five more minutes you know and I'm like oh, God. okay i'm violating a bunch of rules with that we're out of our area i mean we're 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 doing all kinds of crazy stuff here and patty's like find them a hotel and i look at her i'm like what am I, TripAdvisor? How, how, my Google? I mean, that wasn't even a thing back then. So I'm trying to find hotels for them. There was nothing in the city of Milwaukee, but there was one in a suburb about a half an hour away. And she said, okay, we'll just take them there. And I said, we are going to take them there? I said, yeah. Well, so not only are we out of our squad area, now we're going to leave the city, which usually you have to have like an inspector okay, something like that or at least a captain. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, sure, why not? You know, I just go down in this ball of flames. But, you know, it's like you look at this family and you felt so bad for them. So she said, yeah, okay, you found one? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, I drive to this hotel way out of the city. And then she looks at it and she says, yeah, I, I don't have any money. And I we're like, some of a biscuit. All right, fine. So between Patty and I, we paid for their hotel. Yeah, you know, and then and then finally we went back into service. And you know, I look back on that, and we broke so many rules. We could have gotten suspended. You know, lots and lots of days. That could have cost us a lot of money, a lot of discipline. But at the end of the day, it was the right thing to do. It's all about um, 
community policing, isn't it? You know, uh, yes, rules and, you know, legislation, policy and procedure and regulations are there. They're important. You've got to follow them. But in essence, when you look at the, that incident in its totality, that's about community service. It's about serving and protecting the people that need you at their most vulnerable. And you're doing exactly that. Yeah, you know, it, it was just the right thing to do. And we knew she didn't have any other options and she had little kids and like I said, it wasn't the worst, but it wasn't the best neighborhood. I mean, she might as well have had a neon sign on her forehead saying, I'm a victim. Come victimize me. You know, it's like you didn't want to see that. But in the same token, there was all kinds of stuff going on all over the district that we were needed for. But we made a call and we just did it. When did you decide uh, in your career that you wanted greater levels of responsibility and you obtained the rank of sergeant? When, when was that for you the moment to progress? different jobs that I've had through college and after college before I was a police officer I was in management I I was a supervisor different jobs and I enjoyed it because I thought that I could help other people I could help my employees and I became a cop and I thought to myself well a I'll make more money if I'm a boss but not that much but I enjoy more responsibility and it afforded me the chance to be more of a help to my cops. You know, it's funny because, you know, you have the shootings and stabbings and fires and car accidents and robberies and all that stuff. But the, some of the biggest stressors are the administration. You know, does the administration have my back? That That's one of the biggest stressors for a police officer. Or they're going through something at home. Hey, my wife is cheating on me. Hey, my kid is sick you know, whatever. And they go to your sergeant. Yeah, I love being a sergeant because I was still on the street, but I was kind of the buffer between the lieutenant and the captain and the cops. That's And to tell you the, the God's honest truth, I had some bosses that were terrible and I'm like, I could do a lot better job than them. So that's that was another reason why I took the test and became a sergeant. That always seems to be the common denominator in the fact of people being um, sort of subjected to sort of poor leadership. Or we, we often describe them as more managers, not leaders. And you want to be that leader. You want to be able to def- define and set the standards and lead from the front and support the troops and, and see where the failings are and make sure that's all is improved. But equally, there's a great deal of um, responsibility that goes there. And as a sergeant, you can be really right under the pump going from job to job to job, which sort of really quite nicely flows us into our next segment of your career in 2002, which we're calling this the busiest night as a sergeant, where you're going from job to job, you've got a break and you've got a forced entry by one of your constables, one of your crew guys, you've got a, a suicide underway, you've got multiple things, you're spinning lots of plates. Tell us how you handle that pressure on that particular night. I was by myself that night as a sergeant. Usually there was two or three of us that would supervise about 23 cops. You know, that would be our late shift. And whatever reason, it was just me. And I was fine with that, you know, no big deal. I had a few years as a sergeant under my belt. I was very confident in what I was doing. And I just got done with roll call. A cop went off to a, like, entry in progress, somebody breaking into a house. And it wound up being, it was more of a medical situation, but they had to break down the door. And it's like, okay. So if one of your officers breaks somebody's door down, if they have to force entry, a sergeant has to come and do a report. You take pictures, you interview, you know, the people on scene, et cetera, et cetera. So I grabbed my camera, my digital camera, and 
I start heading that way, and it's like, you know, squad two, and I was squad two, and I'm like, yes. It's like, hey, we've got a, we call them uh, a PNB, pulseless non-breather, so a dead body. You know, it's like, okay. So I pull up to the driveway of this, uh, like I said, it was just a medical emergency. I just, I literally threw the phone at the cop and I said, take some pictures, get the info and I'll do the report later. And he says, okay, Sarge. So I, I scoot over to the dead body and it was a family living on top. It was an apartment on top of like a furniture store. And it was three little kids crying like crazy. A woman that was hysterical and a man without his shirt on with this gigantic knife sticking out of his chest. And it's like, and there was blood all over the place. It looked like somebody spilled a gallon of Kool-Aid. It was crazy. So I, you know, I'm like, I'm looking and I'm like, okay, you know, and unfortunately nobody spoke English. Uh, thankfully I had one of my police officers that was a Spanish speaker and he was interviewing the wife. So he said, yeah, you know, she's saying that he was really distraught and he stabbed himself in the chest. And I looked and I said, Francisco, how many people stab themselves in the chest? Not too many. And I said, take a look at her. She's got a little black eye. A couple of her fingernails are broken. Those are defensive wounds. She was doing battle with this guy. This is my two seconds, you know, evaluation of the scene. She was probably getting her ass kicked on a regular basis by this asshole. And she had enough and she stabbed him. Yeah, she came up with this big story, and finally, homicide detectives get there, and the lieutenant that's there, he says, yeah, she killed him. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, but my cop was very, he was new and very, uh, he saw the world in a very rosy way. You know, he wasn't jaded yet. (laughs) He he was a good guy, a real good guy. And... Yeah, I'm trying to convince them what really happened. And then a call comes over for a, you know, we're there for a couple of hours. And, you know, crime scene people are doing their thing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And a call comes over the radio for a barricaded subject. Now this is like 5 o'clock in the morning or 6 in the morning. A barricaded subject with a knife saying he's going to kill his family. And I'm like, and again, I'm the only boss. So I looked at the lieutenant and I said, you got this? He says, yeah, don't worry about it, Pat. I'm like, all right, cool. So I scoot to the hostage situation. The bear, This guy was, had a bottle of Jack Daniels whiskey in one hand and a big Rambo knife in the other hand. And his family was sitting on the couch. It was his wife and two kids. Oh, yeah, wife and two kids bawling, and he's just saying how he's going to slice them up and kill them and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So I've got cops on each side with guns ready to take this guy out. If he took one more step, we're going to shoot him. You know, if he took a step towards that family, we wouldn't have a choice. So, and I look, and he's got furniture and whatever else barricaded against the front door and the back door. I'm like, son of a biscuit. So I call for a med unit in case, you know, somebody does get stabbed. To stage, I had the fire department staging, and I called for the tax squad, which is our SWAT team. Well, it's going to take them at least an hour, and I'm like, oh. so we. I got a dialogue going with the guy. I started talking to him. Then he reaches in his pocket and pulls out this bottle of prescription medicine and takes every pill in that bottle. 
I have no idea what it is. And he's washing it down with Jack Daniels. Now he's starting to stagger. And I'm like, good. One of my cops, he, he got very excited. He said, Sarge, he's going to die. And I'm like, no, he isn't. And it's better him passing out from whatever he's taking than him stabbing all these, you know, poor innocent people. Yeah, I said, he's kind of taking care of my problem as we speak. So one of the cops lost his mind, tried to break down the door, and now, you know, now it's game on. And thank God, as we're breaching the door and going through it, the guy passed out. And again, I had a med unit, I had an ambulance less than a block away. So he obviously he overdosed on, I think it was painkillers. It was like Oxycontin or Vicodin or something like that. But, I mean, I had all that at the same time. And then I'm like, oh, shit, I've got a dead body you know, <laughs> on the other side of the district. I better go over there. So I'm like, okay, this is all taken care of. Excellent. So I go back, and they already took her downtown by the time this is the other thing was all done and over with. And then I found out that they questioned her for eight hours, and she would not admit to it. They didn't arrest her. They drove her back home. The detective that did the interrogation drove her back home. And as he was letting her out the door, she looked at me and says, I did it. I stabbed him. Just out of the blue. Yep. But the DA didn't prosecute. She didn't go to jail for it. As I said, she had been a victim of domestic violence for years. And finally, she just had enough. He was beating her up. And, he's, and she's like, nope, not today. We're done. They are all some incredible stories, Patrick. Like they are phenomenal, phenomenal stories of uh, of managing, you know, crises and 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 difficult investigations and multitasking and supporting your teams and it's phenomenal stuff. Were you? I, I'm so. Were you ready to leave in 2020 and hang up your kit belt? Were you ready to move on to the next? passion which is obviously we're going to talk about now which is writing which you adopted whilst you're in the police but in 2020 hanging up your kit belt and walking out that station for the final time what were the feelings i was ready i loved my job i loved being a boss i felt like i could almost handle anything that was thrown at me i had great cops that their dedication and honor were second to none you know, they totally selfless, just good people. You know, it was an honor and a privilege to work with them all and to be a part of, you know, that team. But it was time. You know, I was 55 years old and policing, doing that kind of policing. Yeah, I went day shift after a while, but it was still almost as busy, actually. But you know what? Running after bad guys, doing being under that kind of stress is not an old guy's game. It's a young guy's game. So 55 was enough for me, and I had that plan that I'm like, you know what, I'm going to pull the pin then. And I walked away with mixed feelings. Of course, I still miss the camaraderie. I miss the fun. I miss the adrenaline. But I don't miss the BS, you know, with, you know, politics and administrative stuff and just all the silliness that you see. But I love policing. I love making a difference with people's lives and, and my cops' lives. You know, that part I think I missed the most. Now, you and I met um, online through the Cops and Writers Facebook page. You've obviously taken on this sort of whole new dimension of writing. You've got nine published um, 
books out there from everything from selling cars to sort of the challenges and the troubles of divorce as well as some of your police work. Let's focus on first the cops cops and writers facebook page that's got an incredible following which is supported by your podcast which i've had the honor of being on what sort of the um what was this, was this, was that was that part of your exit strategy in terms of looking at next opportunities because often as cops we get lost for a little bit but it seems like you had something in mind well it was kind of serendipitous where i started the writing thing while i was still a police officer but i knew the end was coming i mean not police i was a police sergeant I knew the end was near. You know, I had a couple of years before I was eligible to retire, and I'm like, I know what I don't want to do. I don't want to do this again. Like I said, I absolutely loved my job, but it was time to step away. And what do you do? I was 55 years old. I mean, there's all kinds of different stuff I guess I could have done. But I thought to myself, you know, um, I, I've had a lot of life experience before I was a cop, and... I published my first book. It was about how to buy a car because I sold cars for four years. And that opened my eyes to indie publishing where you can publish a book by yourself. You you don't need an agent. You don't need a publisher. And I joined 20 Books to 50K, which was an online group, Facebook group. It was mostly independent authors. One of the biggest, it is the biggest indie author um, group in the world. So that really opened my eyes to a lot and I got educated and I just started writing different books. And then to, as I got immersed in this indie author community, inevitably I'd be at a concert or something at a conference, not a concert. And somebody come up to me and say, Oh, you're that cop guy. Right. And I wasn't wearing a t-shirt saying I'm a cop. I wasn't wearing a uniform. I mean, I guess I just have that persona. And they'd ask me a question, and it's like, okay, and it's like, would would my character need a warrant, you know, to get into the house for this, or how would that work? And I, you know, be more than happy to talk to them. And there seemed to be a big interest in that, so I started writing the two cops and writers books for writers, and I started the Facebook group to see if there was the interest, and there was. And I started the podcast to kind of help sell the books, but that became its own beast where I just enjoy doing it now. You know, it's like it, it complements each other, but I, I truly, truly enjoy doing the podcast. I meet people like you. I've, I've met a lot of really cool people. I find, you know, it's interesting. I find my podcast very cathartic, and I think most of my guests do too. And, you know, um, I think mine is, you know, I started my podcast, what we're talking, uh, August, September last year. I think we're about 70, 76 shows in tomorrow. You know, um, goodness me, what are we up to? About 8,500 followers of the show. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, do you know what? It's, uh, you know, often we, you think, oh, it's what I'm doing good enough is it having an impact and all i want to do is to tell the stories of people like you to show that there are ordinary people that have done extraordinary work or as one of my former guests said extraordinary people doing extraordinary work how have you found the general sort of um receipt of your podcast you obviously got a great little following yourself in terms of people that tune in you know what's the what's the greatest challenge for you running the podcast uh challenge is trying to vary your guests having interesting people with interesting stories, 
you don't want to have the same thing week after week after week. You want to, you know, mix up that batch. And, you know, originally, you know, it's cops and writers. So I wanted people that were in law enforcement and that were also writers. And a lot of them are, but I also have interviewed, you know, an ex-KGB agent that was living in the United States covertly. I interviewed a CIA operator who for years, you know, was down in the jungles in Honduras. Um, they're just great people that I just love talking to, FBI agents, all the different, you know, a couple of weeks ago I had a ATF agent who went deep undercover with the pagan motorcycle um, gang. He was he was a fully patched pagan. He was in he was deep undercover for two years. Two years of his life he had he gave up, you know, to for this investigation. He was married, he had kids, but he had to put all that behind him for two years. You know, just talking to somebody like that really just puts things in focus. But I'll also talk to people that are authors that write crime genre and kind of pick their brains. And, you know, everybody's got a great story, you know, and I'm learning that. And probably, you know, some of the, you know, as you well know, too, I don't know if you have people do the editing and producing and all that, but I'm a one band, one man band, you know, I do it all. And that does take a lot of time and a lot of work. So what's on the road ahead for Patrick O'Donnell? Well, I, I'm going to keep writing. I was, because of the podcast, I interviewed somebody that was the creator of the 20 books to 50k group, Michael Anderley. And he has his own publishing company now, and I'm collaborating with him. I'm writing books with him now. The fourth book of the Brew City Blues series, which is loosely based on my time with the Milwaukee PD. It's kind of like Hill Street Blues, but in Milwaukee, and it's modern. So, you know, it, a, it focuses a lot on the characters themselves. You know, there's car chases and, you know, all kinds of fun police stuff, but I like to focus on the, the people themselves. You know, there's a central character, et cetera. And that happened because of the podcast. So I want to keep on podcasting, you know, I until I get bored or nobody wants to talk to me anymore, I guess. <laughs> so I'll I'll keep doing that. I'm I'm going to keep writing and myself and another um law enforcement officer recently did something we called Cop Camp where he's an instructor up at the Appleton uh, Police Academy here in Wisconsin. And we had crime writers go through the police academy. You know, we had classes in forensics. We had guest speakers in all different facets of law enforcement and writing. And that worked out really well. So we'll do another conference next year. We had, we had a woman, Madeline Roberts, came from New Zealand to come to this conference. So I was I was blown away. It was very, very well received. So I'll be doing that again with my partner rj beam and yeah the sky's the limit right you're just gonna keep on writing well i've got you know i've got two potential guests which i'll give a shout out to on this episode so we've got a a former borough commander here in london called john sutherland who's um, a police officer turned author who's just released a book called the fallen um has an incredible reviews he's become a an incredible writer he's got the fallen he's got the siege he's also got a couple of other sort of memoirs about his time in in british policing and then there's another one which i've really enjoyed reading which is this is the murder investigation team by uh, retired detective inspector steve keogh so 
I will be sure to hand those names across to you so that you can get some fascinating writers onto your podcast. But for now, listen, Patrick, it's been an amazing one hour of conversation reflecting on your life in, in US policing in Milwaukee. It's You know, the stories just really are fascinating in terms of the intensity and the challenges that you faced uh, in your time in policing. So on behalf of uh, my little team here at Protect and Serve, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. What I want to finish with is if people want to tune into your podcast, what's its name? Where can everybody find you? Uh, Cops and Writers is the name of the podcast, and it's on all the different platforms, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon. I think I'm on 20 different platforms. So... Wherever you consume your podcast, I'm probably there. Well, Patrick, it's been an absolute honor. Thank you ever so much for sharing your time and your experiences with me. And we wish you all the best for the future with the podcast, with the writing, and anything else that you wish to take on in the future. Thank you, Ali. It was a pleasure and an honor, as always. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.